Well, good evening. It's good to be with you all and to be able to worship with you. Uh, this evening, my name's Scott. I'm the pastor of Harvest Glasgow. Uh, we're a 10-year-old, I don't know a church plant anymore. We're a 10-year-old church. I think we planted a while ago now. So we're probably, we just celebrated our 10th uh, anniversary uh, back in August, which is uh, terrific fun and just so thankful to the Lord for all of that. Nice to be back here as well and to see uh, so many familiar faces. Um, so let's turn together to God's word again, um, back into First Peter chapter 1. We're going to just look at verses 13 to 16. I feel no need uh, to, to reread it, having read it once. Let's, uh, let's, let me pray and then we'll dive into um, what God's word has to say to us this evening. This is, uh, uh, let, let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful to you for the opportunity to spend time uh, this evening uh, to worship you, uh, for you're worthy. Uh, to open your word, uh, to hear what you would have to say to us from it and how you would change us as we um, sit under it and as we gather around your table to remember uh, the great cost of our salvation and the amazing promises that that has secured for us. Thankful for all of that. And so now as we turn to your word, Father, we pray that you would stir within us a deeper affection for you Stir within us a deeper desire to live our lives for you and a deeper passion to see your name glorified in and through our lives. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First Peter is an amazing book. Um, I'm not sure if you spent time in it recently. It was good just to even get a little bit of context for what we're going to look at this evening as Sandra led us. Um, First Peter's written to a bunch of people who are scattered and struggling, feeling the weight of the world upon their shoulders. And, and Peter is uh, keen to communicate to them a few things. The first part of the first 12 verses of chapter 1 are really Peter reminding uh, the, 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 the churches in, in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. He's reminding them of the great promises of God that they've been, they've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. They have not that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And that that is kept in heaven, that is guarding in heaven for them. That's a great picture of, of God having almost kind of, he's got that locked down. He's got your, the, the security of your salvation, the assurance of all that he's promised to you, the assurance of that inheritance that he offers you. He's got that locked down, it's kept in heaven for you. And, and when God is keeping something, when God is guarding something, then there's nothing that can take that away. That's a great encouragement he's giving them. He's, he's, he's highlighting to them over and over again the, the promises of God and, and also reminding them that the, the struggles and the challenges and the trials and the difficulties and the weight of the world that they're feeling on their shoulders at that particular moment is designed to actually prove some of the realities of the salvation that they have received that they're, they're persevering through those things are evidence of God's work in them. And it's an amazing thing to, to, that he maps out in, these first tw- on those, in those first 12 verses. Uh, he, 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 talks, he then talks just in verses 10 to 12 about how the, the prophets were so excited to share, the prophets of the Old Testament were so excited to share the news of, of Jesus coming and the gospel and, and, what, and the salvation plan that God had in place. And the angels are, are on the edge of their seats leaning in to observe and to watch and to see all that's going on. And, and you can, almost as you read it, you can imagine and you can feel not just your own spirits rising, not just your own own hope welling up inside of you but also that of those who would have received this letter at the very first time so with all of that said Peter is so helpful in highlighting first Peter is so helpful in highlighting 
two big dangers for us in chapter 1. The two big dangers we have as we maybe feel as if we're going through periods of trial or difficulty or, or the two, or two big dangers that we, we, we experience or we need to be watchful for if we are feeling the weight of the world upon our shoulders. The, the two big dangers are that we find in, in chapter 1. The first part is what we find in, in, chapters, in verses 1 to 12. The, the first danger is that, that we lose sight of God's promises. So if you have, feel as if you've got the weight of the world upon your shoulders, then my encouragement to you, we're not going to have time to deal with this tonight. My, my, my remit is small, just these three verses. But the, what, what we've already started to look at in the service in terms of these first 12 verses, to remind yourself of God's promises. If the weight of the world being on your shoulders is causing you to lose sight of God's promises, my encouragement to you would be to go and spend the week meditating on verses 1 to 12. So that's danger number one, is you lose sight of God's promises the second danger is what we're going to look at from what we read already this evening from verses 13 to 16. The second danger is this, that we would compromise around things that God's work, things that God, God's work in us calls us to. So if, if, if verses 1 to 12 are, are about us forgetting God's promises, then the verses 13 to 16... And probably a little bit beyond that as well. But again, we're just going to look at these verses. Verses 13 to 16, the danger is that we would compromise on God's purposes for our lives. So the two dangers are this. We forget God's promises, we compromise on God's purposes. And the, danger, the dangers are that we lose sight of God's promises and that as a result, we start to live for something other than what God has called us to. That's, the, that's, the, that's, those, that's how those dangers are interlinked because it's when we lose sight of God's promises, it's when we start to live for something other than what Jesus has provided for us and won for us by his death and the cross, it's when those things happen then we start to live for things other than God's purposes because we believe other promises more than we believe the promises of Jesus Christ. So when it says at the beginning of verse 13, therefore... Now, we all know the old preacher's gag of when it says, therefore, you've got to understand what it is, therefore, hopefully we've amply dealt with that. When it says, therefore, it's a reminder to live with such a joyful focus on God's promises to you in Jesus that everything within you longs to live in such a way as points to the hope that you have in Jesus. Everything within you longing to live in light of and towards and directed towards the hope that you have because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. It's being gripped by the gospel in such a way as brings with it a desire to live for God with all that you are and all that you have. And here's the reality for all of us, and it's an uncomfortable reality in many ways. If you don't have a great desire to live for God, just now as we sit, if we, or as we stand, just to include myself in that, because I include myself in this sentence, If we don't have a great desire to live for God, it is likely because you are failing to be gripped by the gospel. If I don't have a great desire to live my life for God with all that I am and all that I have, it is likely because I am failing to be gripped by the gospel. That's the reality. And into that comes the encouragement of the instruction of verses 13 to 16 that Sandra read for us earlier on. Here, in many ways, is I've dressed it up as a kind of training program. Here's a training program for people who long for their lives to be increasingly transformed by the gospel. There's a two-part two-part training program. Okay, we like short training programs. Okay, it's simply this: buckle up and knuckle down. That's it. Okay, it's not rocket science. I'm a Western Scotland male, therefore this simple equals better. Okay, that's. Um, 
Buckle up and knuckle down. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you like roller coasters. Um, I love a roller coaster, okay? We, I, I, I love all that kind of stuff. And, um, but there is, I'll be honest, a process you go through when you go onto the roller coaster. You're, you, you, you make the decision, I'm going to go on that roller coaster. You go and stand in the line and there's like, yeah, we're going to go on the roller coaster. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. We're going to love it. And, and then you get near the queue and think, oh, so I get a little bit nervous now. And then you sit in the seat. And then, you know, they, they, they have these things that come over and you hear the, and then there's a click. And then you know you're in trouble because there's no way out. That's it. You're, you're thoroughly committed at that point. And then, and then all, before you know it, basically you're in a seat facing the so the microphone doesn't work up there. You're a, feet, you're a seat facing the sky. You need to imagine me facing the sky now, okay? And you're getting gradually moved up and up and up, higher and higher towards the sky. There's no sign of any ground, okay? And, and then you go up and over the edge. And you, before you're, you're, this was a terrible idea! And then you try to make it sound better uh, when you get around there. Says, I wasn't scared at all. Yay! That's how it works. Straps come on, point of no return. So what's the, what, what, what's the point of that? Because just like being in a roller coaster, investing yourself in the Christian life will be simultaneously thrilling and terrifying. And why do we say that? Because it, when we are investing ourselves in the Christian life, when we are seeking to live our lives for God with all that we have and all that we have, it, it, at the same time, thrills our faith and terrifies our flesh. That's what happens. When we make the decision, I'm going to live all in for Jesus and live my life entirely for him and give myself wholly to him, it simultaneously thrills my faith and terrifies my flesh. It thrills my faith to see what God would do when my life is totally given to him. It thrills our faith when that happens. But it also terrifies our flesh because we are reluctant to give up the things the world the world treasures in order to trust in Jesus. We, it terrifies our flesh because we are reluctant to give up the things that the world teaches us to treasure and, and causes us to fear having to give up in order to follow Jesus. And it calls into question, and amongst all of that, is Jesus worthy and is he worth it? And we know the answer. If, we're, if we sit down, we're sitting in church, okay? So we all say, yes, he's totally worthy. Yes, he's totally worth it. But then we go out into the world and we're tempted by what we see around about and we forget We forget God's promises, so therefore we compromise in God's purposes. You know the old acrostic, I'm going to go with that, for faith, forsaking all I trust him. You know that one? Forsaking all I trust him. So that idea of faith is us being willing to forsake everything else in order to trust Jesus Christ. That's the encouragement. That's the direction of travel. Forsaking all, forsaking everything else in order to go all in on him. That's what faith is. Faith encourages us to throw ourselves into living for Jesus with all that we are. And so what we see in verse 13 is a kind of, to use the playground analogy of ready, steady hope. Okay? So it's almost like we're poised and we're ready. So ready, steady hope. So when we say buckle up, the encouragement is to to get, to, to get ready, to get our focus, to make ourselves steady, to set, ourselves, set, set our lives in the right place and with the right posture, and then to hope, to look to the goal, to be reminded of God's promises. 
And we're just going to work through, so let's just work through them. First of all, ready. The first, where do we get ready from? Well, if you look down, it's this idea of preparing your minds for action, getting yourself ready. The, the word, the, the picture here is of tightening your belt, gathering your loose clothing to run, to battle, to do some physical work. It's about getting a right focus and, and losing things or tying things up or binding things that will tangle you up trip you up or cause you to struggle to complete the task at hand. It says here that I and you, we have to prepare our minds. And we're thinking, well, why our minds? There's lots of other things we could prepare. Why our minds? Well, because our minds impact how I think about my life, how I understand the world, how I I assess things like value and worth, how I make choices and decisions. And all of them come into play when we're thinking of this matter of holiness that we're really going to get to and dig into further. The encouragement is, the encouragement in preparing our minds is simply this, to think differently from the world around about us. To think distinctly, to have a distinct view of my life informed by God's promises and eternity and worship and living for Jesus who gave himself for me. That's the encouragement, to think differently. And it's not thinking for thinking's sake. You'll note this. It says, prepare your minds, not just to prepare your minds, it's prepare your minds for action, to do something. Prepare your minds for action. It's engaging your mind for the purpose of action. It's deciding what you're going to live for. Have you decided that? What is it you're living for? When you go from here, what is it you're giving your life to? What is it you're willing to give your life for? It's deciding what you're going to give your life for, give your life to, what it is you're going to trust. All of those things come into play. Those are the things that are active elements of the faith that mean we forsake everything else in order to follow Jesus. So again, the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, they're not designed to lie dormant or stagnant in our lives. They're They're way too important for that. So when it says prepare your mind, it's prepare your mind to live in light of God's promises. It's prepare your mind to live in pursuit of God's promises. Get yourself ready. That's why we get together on a Sunday, surely. It's to prepare our mind for the week ahead because our natural tendency is to drift from the things of the Lord, to drift from the things he's mapped out in his word. And so this is an opportunity for us to correct course, to be drawn back in and redirected back towards Jesus. That's why we get together on a Sunday. That's why the Lord has given us this day to gather around about his word and to sing songs of worship to him and to gather around about his table. That's why he's done it. To refocus because we, I need, well, I need refocus. I don't know about you. So for people under pressure, like the people that Peter was writing to, for you and I, as we live in a culture far from Jesus, For people under pressure for following Jesus, undergoing trials and suffering for owning Jesus' name, there's something important to grasp about the the battle and in particular where it starts. The battle for trusting God and believing the gospel and faith in Jesus starts not outside of us. And it's easy for us to point to the culture and say that's where the battle is. That's not what this tells us. The battle doesn't tell us that the, 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 the Bible doesn't tell us, God's word doesn't tell us that the battle starts outside of us. The battle rather starts inside of us, starts in our minds, it starts in who we are. The blessings of God's promises are fought for in the battlefield of your own heart and mind. That's where the battle, primary battlefield is. 
And why, why would we say that? Well, here's the reality. The world can never take God's promises away from you, but you can very easily take your eyes off of them. So God, the, the world isn't the thing that can, the world can't take God's promises away from you, but you're, you can very easily take your eyes off of God's promises. So the encouragement is, as we, uh, the encouragement of earlier on to meditate on verses 1 to 12 and to reflect upon the gospel is really the encouragement. I think the first person I ever heard speak about this was the author Jerry Bridges who talked about the utter importance of preaching the gospel to yourself every day. To remind yourself of the gospel every day. To preach the gospel to yourself. Give, give yourself something to build your life upon. The gospel is giving you something to build your life upon. It's a launch pad for living for Jesus in a lost world. You see, because when you've trusted Jesus, you can't lose the inheritance that God has promised to you in him. But every day you're at risk of losing sight of it and and looking to something else instead of him. So not just ready but also steady. Where are you building your life? Setting it in the right place, giving, having it with the right posture. The encouragement here is to be sober or sober-minded. Again, as an extension of the mind theme, it pictures being clear-headed and self-controlled. The use of the word sober here isn't a reference to whether we should abstain from drinking alcohol or not. That's not what it's talking about. It's, instead, it's, talk, it's a picture's Peter was using the picture of the kind of steadiness the Christian should pursue, the kind of stability that should be typical of the Christian life. So I came up with a list of things a drunk person can't do because I thought that might be helpful just to illustrate the point that Peter is making here. So things a drunk person can't do, they can't make wise decisions, and they can't stay upright when obstacles come their way, They can't see and respond to danger or identify risk. And they can't moderate their excess. Do you see the picture that Peter is drawing for us? The encouragement and idea of being sober-minded is to pursue the kind of self-control that frees you to make good decisions, to not stumble in your pursuit of Jesus, to identify the risks of sin, temptation, and lacking trust, and to pursue biblical, biblical rather than sinful excess. And you, I know you understand now you're saying biblical excess. What do you mean by that? Well, I made a little Bible checklist or to-do list or things to ask God to grow in you in regards to these things, things that would grow in you as, a, as fruit of the life he calls you to. How about this? First of all, things we get to abound in or grow in. How about thankfulness? First of all, Colossians 2 7 talks about how, as you receive Christ Jesus, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's what we're encouraged to do. We're encouraged to abound in thanksgiving. That's the first mark of biblical excess. Or how about faith? 2 Thessalonians 1 3, we always ought to give thanks to you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. So thankfulness and faith, these are the things of biblical excess. These are good things to be abounding in and exceeding in. Or 
Having the knowledge of God, walking in a Colossians 1.10 talks about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing, increasing in the knowledge of God. So we abound, we ab- as abundantly, we increase in the knowledge of God. Or how about love? 1 Thessalonians 3.12 May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. These are all things about how, Jesus, how, we, how, how God's word prepares our minds in order to be abounding in the things of Jesus rather than abounding in the things of the world. Or one of my personal favorites, one of, I guess one of my life verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. The work of the Lord is the next thing we're to show biblical excess in. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. All that to say, the most important things you can build your life on are the things that are to do with the work of the Lord in your life. This, word, this idea of being steady or sober-minded is about thinking on your position and posture before the Lord. What is it you're abounding in? When people look at your life, what did they see overflowing? What did they see increasing? What did they see abundantly, clearly in your life? Encouragement is to biblical abundance born out of living towards the hope that we have. So ready is a focus on the Lord. Steady is our position and posture before the Lord. The final instruction that we find is hope. Ready, steady, hope. Which is having an assurance settled on the Lord. Hope could be defined in a whole bunch of different ways. I'm sure you have your own explanations of that. But hope could be defined as an attitude of confidently looking forward to what is good and beneficial. Is that the focus and the stability that comes from building our lives in Jesus frees us to the living hope that Jesus promises. The encouragement is here not just to have hope or keep hope or it is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's to set our hope fully. It's, so no, not partially or occasionally or eventually or fitfully, but fully completely, without wavering. There's a recognition in this, how easy it it is, particularly when life is tough, to be caught in two two minds as to whether to trust in Jesus, whether we really want to forsake everything in order to follow him or not. So we keep something in reserve. We keep some back channels open in case we need a plan B. We talk about eternal hope, but hanker after and hold in high esteem and hoard things that suggest that we're holding out for something better than Jesus. Is that what your life shows? That you're holding out for something better and greater than Jesus? We've been given a living hope. We've we've heard that already this evening. We've been given a living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And the instruction here is to go all in on that with every aspect of our lives. So will we set your hope fully, no double-minded or second-guessing the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? God has and is giving you something far beyond what you deserve or can earn or are able to achieve. Set your heart and mind entirely on that eternal truth, that buckling up that it's imagined or envisaged in the, in the idea of preparing your minds for action, that buckling up for action. Though remember, there's, a, there's to be a 
byproduct of building your life in the gospel. So having it in your mind, letting it shape the position and posture of your life. Listen, if, God, if who God is has become real to you, if what Jesus has done has changed eternity for you, there is a right response. It's time to not just buckle up but knuckle down. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God's grace is designed to empower you to live out who God is making you to be. God is at work in you to make you spiritually healthy, the definition of which is found in being holy. So there are two things that serve as defining of God's work in you that we are called to avoid compromise on, and those things are obedience and holiness. So I just noted down a couple of things around about this. First of all is that my, my, obedience, makes transformation, my obedience makes my transformation obvious. We're to be, be as obedient children. I don't know if you're parents and you've ever uttered the words, well, you're under my roof. Anyone? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on that. that would be, I, I don't want to out anybody. I'm not sure it would be the parents or the kids I would be outing just now, so let's not do that. But when it says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. When it says obedient children, it's a reminder that you and I are called to live as if we are under God's roof. That's what God is eternally inviting you to. And there is an opportunity to get started in that right now. You get to get started on what God has planned for you and purpose for you eternally today. Now. Uh, what time is it just now? Uh, 20 past 7 on a Sunday night in Hamilton. Sun, what, what was sunny Hamilton today? There's an opportunity for you to get started on that right now. So as obedient children, and that's the picture of God's relationship with us, it's a picture of adoption. He is our father who has adopted us out of sin and into sonship from the destruction of sin to being daughters of the eternal king. That's what he's done. And if we know who God is and what he has saved us from, more if we know who God is and what he has saved us to, and that's the, really the rigging that was set up in those first 12 verses, look at how, how God has saved you. Look at what he's secured for you. If, if, we, if we know who God is and what he has saved us to, why wouldn't, why wouldn't we want to, long to, be passionately desirous to do what he instructs us to do? Why wouldn't we long, why wouldn't we crave to be more like him? So I don't even know where I would start with that. What does that, what does that even look like? Well, here's what it looks like. It means moving away from the things that used to define our lives before we met Jesus. The problem is we have that drift back towards them. We bob back to them. We go back to them for affection or for affirmation or for meaning or for identity. We go back to those things rather than going towards Jesus for those things. Rather than forsaking all those things, we are fawning after those things. The encouragement here is do not be conformed. Do not be molded or follow the fashion of the world around about you, the culture around about you, the flesh that, that, that dwells within you, the world won't quit. Here's the reality. The world will not quit in trying to shape you and mold you into the shape of the things that it values. 
That was the challenge of living for Jesus for these folks who were getting the letter that Peter was writing. And as God's word to us, God's word comes to us today, the challenge is exactly the same. The challenge is this. We are persistently and prominently bombarded with pressure to think how the world thinks, to value what the world values, to act like the world acts, to aim for what the world aims for. That's a cause of depression they and we are under. And this is telling us, stop allowing yourselves to be shaped by the things you used to live for. Stop it. Stop trying to fit in with things that are supposed to be finished with. These things are described here as the passions of your former ignorance. Not really it's being called ignorant, but that's what it's saying you are if you are being drawn back towards those things. The things you desired before God changed, your eternal destiny, are the things that Jesus had to die on a cross to deal with. The things that you longed for before God gave you a living hope closed your eyes to the reality that sin is always a loss. Peter's saying you lived for them before you knew any better. But now you do know better. Why would you go back there and drink from those poisoned wells again? You lived for them before you had been given new life in Jesus. But now you've been given new life in Jesus. It's time to live it. So that was the first thing I noted down was that idea of my obedience makes transformation obvious. The second thing is this. First, let me read. So we're not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, he said, the word holy appears a few times there. Hopefully the repetition has helped us to get the point that we are called to be holy. And why is that significant? Well, I've just noted this down. My holiness is the most heavenish thing about me. So when you consider all of the promises of God and all that he has secured for you eternally and all that, he secured, all that he has delivered to you through Jesus' death and the cross in your place for your sins, all of those things are designed to prepare you for, all of those designs are, things are designed to secure for you an eternal promise. My holiness is the most heavenish thing about me. So here's how it works. Holiness works two ways. The, 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 the kind of longer terms are positional holiness and progressive holiness. Okay, the Positional holiness is what has been secured for you. I'm walking too far away from... I'm used to wondering a little bit more than this. Um, positional holiness is what's been secured for you eternally through Jesus Christ. The inheritance that can never be removed. You are eternally holy when you put your trust in Jesus. That's the assurance we have. The progressive holiness is what's happening day by day as God grows us towards that point when we will mature and fully see and fully realize all that God is doing in our lives and has done in our lives eternally. So we are positionally sanctified, set apart for him, and we are progressively being sanctified, set apart for him more and more each day as we grow and are increasingly conformed not to the passions of our former ignorance, but to the conformed into the character and likeness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's a process that you're on right now if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you realize it or not. You are positionally holy, eternally holy, because Jesus stands in your place. And what Jesus is doing just now is preparing you for the day when you go to be with him. 
And that's a progressive part of all of that. So that's why, so when we say my holiness is the most heavenish thing about me, is that whatever holiness we have in our lives is the thing that most clearly connects us with what God has secured for us eternally. And there's a danger that, and there's a danger that we think of holiness in the negative. In fact, if we asked you to think of popular, so if, the, okay, so game show, okay, popular categories, uh, popular phrases that incorporate the word holy or holiness for 10 points. Anyone give me a, what would be, a, what would be, what would be the winning category, winning answer to that? Holy, holier, holier than now would, would be my answer. Okay, I'm not sure. You didn't get any, any prize for that. Okay? <laughs> That's a bad question. Holier than now. That would be what we, so is that, is that a positive or is that a negative? Well, it's to do with judgment and all that kind of stuff that's associated with that. That's how it would typically be used. Yet holiness is all, yet in scripture, when we open God's word, holiness is always in the positive. It describes being set apart by the Lord for the Lord. It's a wondrous and wonderful thing. The clear instruction here is that holiness is to be pursued probably more significantly, Honestly, probably more significantly than any other character, character trait. Maybe, maybe love. But the, it's a pretty clear instruction here. And the fact that, God, that it's repeated so frequently in God's word, right in these couple of verses, he, called you as, he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. You shall be holy for I am holy. There's, there's a pretty clear instruction for us there. God wants you to be holy. God calls you to holiness. There's no option for somebody who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ other than to pursue holiness. We say, well, why would that be? Why does it seem to be more significant in Scripture than any other character trait? Well, because holiness is something that makes our relationship with God distinct. It's what makes it stand out because it makes us to stand differently from the world and distinctly from the world. It's being set apart and standing differently from the world that surrounds us. It's a clear, practical, lived out demonstration that we've forsaken everything, forsaken everything else and we're trusting him, all in on him. He who called you is holy. He who called you and all that's associated with that word called, he who called you, he who calls you his child, he who called you out of darkness into light, he who calls you his own, he who calls you clean, he who calls you righteous because of Jesus, he who calls you holy because Jesus stands in your place because of his sacrifice on the cross, he who called you is holy. God is holy. Why would you not long to be holy in all that you do like it says here? Why would you not long? How can we not long to give ourselves to that? More God is holy. And if you have anything to do with him, you will be growing in holiness. J.C. Rell has this great quote, which I found so challenging on this whole matter. If you dislike a holy God now, why would you want to be with him forever? If worship does not capture your attention at present, what makes you think it will thrill you in some heavenly future? If if ungodliness is your delight here on earth, 
what will please you in heaven where all is clean and pure, where all is clean and pure. You would not be happy there if you are not holy here. When we planted Harvest Glasgow 10 years ago, two of the defining characteristics I was praying would be typical of people who came to our church would be humility and holiness. That there would be a growing humility, there would be a growing holiness about everybody who came around about our church family. And if God is holy and if he is the one who is eternally and ultimately defining you and me, if he is the one who is eternally and ultimately defining you, defining me, defining us, that's meant to start today by his being holy in all of our conduct. And we should know again, it's all of our conduct. Do you see the, the, the link between hope and holiness is the totality, the, the sense of the fullness of what we're called to there. We are to, we are to, 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 be, to be holy in all of our conduct and all that we do we're to set our hope fully in the Lord. And those two things, the, we are able to set, to, to pursue holy, holiness in all of our conduct and all of our behavior and all of our actions when our hope is set fully in the Lord. Do you see the link between God's promises and God's purposes? When we believe God's promises, it sets us apart for God's purposes. So that means holiness is designed to be our, my way of life. Which is holiness even when no one is looking, as somebody once wrote. Increasingly longing for holiness and increasingly loathing anything that runs counter to it, do you? In your heart, in your soul, in your spirit, do you long? Do you, sorry, do you loathe for anything that runs counter to holiness? Do you long for everything that's associated to holiness? Do you long for the character that God is looking to create in you? Do you long for a purity of life that points with crystal clarity to how much Jesus is changing you? Verse 16 reminds us that it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I don't know if you know what God's purpose is for your life or his great goal for your life. Well, good thing you came along tonight because it's right here. You shall be holy for I am holy. That's his great goal for your life. Describing something here, this describes something of his great goal for your life is holiness. Your progress in holiness is the greatest preparation you can make for heaven. And so we, 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 we pursue holiness with all we are. Your holiness is the most heavenish thing about you. It is most in keeping with what God has kept for you and is guarding you for. So buckle up for the battle to hold on to Jesus. Back on the training plan. Buckle up, for the battle, buckle up for the battle to hold on to Jesus in the world. Knuckle down to live your life for Jesus in this world. The encouragement, as we're going to sing in a moment, is to build your life upon his love as a firm foundation. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful to you for the work that Jesus did to make us eternally holy for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, for those of us who haven't. Father, we pray that you would stir within us a longing to know what that means and to run to you for the help that we desperately need with the sin which marks our souls. For the rest of us who have put our trust in Jesus 
and who are prone to drift and prone to wander and to uh, direct our hearts and affections back towards things we used to live for before Jesus changed our eternal destiny. Father, we pray that you would free us from those things in order to look to the things that you have promised us. Help us to gaze so much on the promises of God that we are filled with a, a desperate passion to live out the purposes of God. Father, make us holy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.